The Thing on the Doorstep by H.P. Lovecraft It is true that I have sent six bullets through the head of my best friend, and yet I hope to show by this statement that I am not his murderer. At first I shall be called a madman, madder than the man I shot in his cell at the Arkham Sanitarium. Later some of my readers will weigh each statement, correlate it with the known facts, and ask themselves how I could have believed otherwise than I did after facing the evidence of that horror, that thing on the doorstep. Until then I also saw nothing but madness in the wild tales I have acted on. Even now I ask myself whether I was misled, or whether I am not mad after all. I do not know. But others have strange things to tell of Edward and Azaneth Derby, and even the stolid police are at their wit's end to account for that last terrible visit. They have tried weakly to concoct a theory of a ghastly jest or warning by discharged servants, yet they know in their hearts that the truth is something infinitely more terrible and incredible. So, I say that I have not murdered Edward Derby. Rather, I have avenged him, and in so doing purged the earth of a horror whose survival might have loosed untold terrors on all mankind. There are black zones of shadow close to our daily paths, and now and then some evil soul breaks a passage through. When that happens, the man who knows must strike before reckoning the consequences. I have known Edward Pickman Derby all my life. Eight years my junior, he was so precocious that we had much in common from the time he was eight and I was sixteen. He was the most phenomenal child scholar I have ever known, and at seven was writing verse of a somber, fantastic, almost morbid cast which astonished the tutors surrounding him. Perhaps his private education and coddled seclusion had something to do with his premature flowering. An only child, he had organic weaknesses which startled his doting parents and caused them to keep him closely chained to their side. He was never allowed out without his nurse, and seldom had a chance to play unconstrainedly with other children. All this doubtless fostered a strange, secretive life in the boy, with imagination as his one avenue of freedom. At any rate, his juvenile learning was prodigious and bizarre, and his facile writing such as to captivate me despite my greater age. About that time I had leanings toward art of a somewhat grotesque cast, and I found in this younger child a rare kindred spirit. What lay behind our joint love of shadows and marvels was, no doubt, the ancient, moldering, and subtly fearsome town in which we lived, witch-cursed, legend-haunted Arkham, whose huddled, sagging, gambrel roofs and crumbling Georgia balustrades stood out the centuries beside the darkly muttering Miskatonic. As time went by, I turned to architecture and gave up my design of illustrating a book of Edward's demoniac poems. Yet our comradeship suffered no lessening. Young Derby's odd genius developed remarkably, and in his eighteenth year his collected nightmare lyrics made a real sensation when issued under the title Azathoth and Other Horrors. He was a close correspondent of the notorious Baudelarian poet Justin Jeffrey, who wrote The People of the Monolith and died screaming in a madhouse in 1926 after a visit to a sinister, ill-regarded village in Hungary. In self-reliance and practical affairs, however, Derby was greatly retarded because of his coddled existence. His health had improved, but his habits of childish dependence were fostered by over-careful parents so that he never traveled alone, made independent decisions, or assumed responsibilities. It was early seen that he would not be equal to a struggle in the business or professional arena, but the family fortune was so ample that this formed no tragedy. As he grew to years of manhood, he retained a deceptive aspect of boyishness. Blonde and blue-eyed, he had the fresh complexion of a child, 
and his attempt to raise a mustache were discernible only with difficulty. His voice was soft and light, and his unexercised life gave him a juvenile chubbiness rather than a paunchiness of premature middle age. He was of good height, and his handsome face would have made him a notable gallant had not his shyness held him to seclusion and bookishness. Derby's parents took him abroad every summer, and he was quick to seize on the surface aspects of European thought and expression. His Poe-like talents turned more and more toward the decadent, and other artistic sensitiveness and yearnings were half-aroused in him. We had great discussions in those days. I had been through Harvard, had studied in a Boston architect's office, had married, and had finally returned to Arkham to practice my profession, settling in the family homestead in Saltonstall Street since my father had moved to Florida for his health. Edward used to call almost every evening till I came to regard him as one of the household. He had a characteristic way of ringing the doorbell or sounding the knocker that grew to be a veritable code signal, so that after dinner I always listened for the familiar three brisk strokes followed by two more after a pause. Less frequently, I would visit at his house and note with envy the obscure volumes in his constantly growing library. Derby went through Miskatonic University in Arkham since his parents would not let him board away from them. He entered at sixteen and completed his course in three years, majoring in English and French literature and receiving high marks in everything but mathematics and the sciences. He mingled very little with the other students, though looking enviously at the daring or bohemian set, whose superficially smart language and meaningless ironic pose he aped, and whose dubious conduct he wished he dared adopt. What he did do was to become an almost fanatical devotee of subterranean magical lore, for which Miskatonic's library was and is famous. Always a dweller on the surface of fantasy and strangeness, he now delved deep into the actual runes and riddles left by a fabulous past for the guidance or puzzlement of posterity. He read things like the frightful Book of Ibon, the Unosprechlichen Kalten of von Junst, and the forbidden Necronomicon of the mad Arab Abdul al-Hazred, though he did not tell his parents he had seen them. Edward was twenty when my son and only child was born, and seemed pleased when I named the newcomer Edward Derby Upton after him. By the time he was twenty-five, Edward Derby was a prodigiously learned man, and a fairly well-known poet and fantasist, although his lack of contacts and responsibilities had slowed down his literary growth by making his products derivative and overbookish. I was perhaps his closest friend, finding him an inexhaustible mine of vital theoretical topics while he relied on me for advice in whatever matters he did not wish to refer to his parents. He remained single, more through shyness, inertia, and parental protectiveness than through inclination, and moved in society only to the slightest and most perfunctory extent. When the war came, both health and ingrained timidity kept him at home. I went to Plattsburgh for a commission, but never got overseas. So the years wore on. Edward's mother died when he was thirty-four, and for months he was incapacitated by some odd psychological malady. His father took him to Europe, however, and he managed to pull out of his trouble without visible effects. Afterward, he seemed to feel a sort of grotesque exhilaration, as if of partial escape from some unseen bondage. He began to mingle in the more advanced college set despite his middle age, and was present at some extremely wild doings, on one occasion paying heavy blackmail, which he borrowed of me, to keep his presence at a certain affair from his father's notice. Some of the whispered rumors about the wild Miskatonic set were extremely singular. There was even talk of black magic, and of happenings utterly beyond credibility. 2. Edward was thirty-eight when he met Azanathwaite. 
She was, I judge, about twenty-three at the time, and was taking a special course in medieval metaphysics at Miskatonic. The daughter of a friend of mine had met her before, in the hall school at Kingsport, and had been inclined to shun her because of her odd reputation. She was dark, smallish, and very good-looking, except for over-protuberant eyes, but something in her expression alienated extremely sensitive people. It was, however, largely her origin and conversation which caused average folk to avoid her. She was one of the Innsmouthwaites, and dark legends have clustered for generations about crumbling, half-deserted Innsmouth and its people. There are tales of horrible bargains about the year 1850, and of a strange element not quite human in the ancient families of the run-down fishing port, tales such as only old-time Yankees can devise and repeat with proper awesomeness. Azanath's case was aggravated by the fact that she was Ephraim Waite's daughter, the child of his old age by an unknown wife who always went veiled. Ephraim lived in a half-decayed mansion in Washington Street, Innsmouth, and those who had seen the place, Arkham folk avoid going to Innsmouth whenever they can, declared that the attic windows were always boarded, and that strange sounds sometimes floated from within as evening drew on. The old man was known to have been a prodigious magical student in his day, and legend averred that he could raise or quell storms at sea according to his whim. I had seen him once or twice in my youth as he came to Arkham to consult forbidden tomes at the college library, and had hated his wolfish, saturnine face with its tangle of iron-gray beard. He had died insane, under rather queer circumstances, just before his daughter, by his will made a nominal ward of the principal, entered the hall school, but she had been his morbidly avid pupil and looked fiendishly like him at times. The friend whose daughter had gone to school with Azanathwaite repeated many curious things when the news of Edward's acquaintance with her began to spread about. Azanath, it seemed, had posed as a kind of magician at school, and had really seemed able to accomplish some highly baffling marvels. She professed to be able to raise thunderstorms, though her seeming success was generally laid to some uncanny knack at prediction. All animals markedly disliked her, and she could make any dog howl by certain motions of her right hand. There were times when she displayed snatches of knowledge and language very singular and very shocking for a young girl, when she would frighten her schoolmates with leers and winks of an inexplicable kind, and would seem to extract an obscene zestful irony from her present situation. Most unusual, though, were the well-attested cases of her influence over other persons. She was, beyond question, a genuine hypnotist. By gazing peculiarly at a fellow student, she would often give the latter a distinct feeling of exchanged personality, as if the subject were placed momentarily in the magician's body and able to stare half across the room at her real body, whose eyes blazed and protruded with an alien expression. Azanath often made wild claims about the nature of consciousness and about its independence of the physical frame, or at least from the life processes of the physical frame. Her crowning rage, however, was that she was not a man, since she believed a male brain had certain unique and far-reaching cosmic powers. Given a man's brain, she declared, she could not only equal, but surpass her father in mastery of unknown forces. Edward met Azanath at a gathering of intelligentsia held in one of the students' rooms, and could talk of nothing else when he came to see me the next day. He had found her full of the interests and erudition which engrossed him most, and was in addition wildly taken with her appearance. I had never seen the young woman, and recalled casual references only faintly, but I knew who she was. It seemed rather regrettable that Derby should become so upheaved about her, but I said nothing to discourage him, since infatuation thrives on opposition. He was not, he said, mentioning her to his father. 
in the next few weeks, I heard of very little but Azanath from young Derby. Others now remarked Edward's autumnal gallantry, though they agreed that he did not look even nearly his actual age, or seem at all inappropriate as an escort for his bizarre divinity. He was only a trifle paunchy, despite his indolence and self-indulgence, and his face was absolutely without lines. Azanath, on the other hand, had the premature crow's feet, which grow from the exercises of an intense will. About this time, Edward brought the girl to call on me, and I at once saw that his interest was by no means one-sided. She eyed him continually with an almost predatory air, and I perceived that their intimacy was beyond untangling. Soon afterward, I had a visit from old Mr. Derby, whom I had always admired and respected. He had heard the tales of his son's new friendship, and had wormed the whole truth out of the boy. Edward meant to marry Azanath, and had even been looking at houses in the suburbs. Knowing my unusually great influence with his son, the father wondered if I could help to break the ill-advised affair off, but I regretfully expressed my doubts. This time it was not a question of Edward's weak will, but of the woman's strong will. The perennial child had transferred his dependence from the parental image to a new and stronger image, and nothing could be done about it. The wedding was performed a month later by a justice of the peace, according to the bride's request. Mr. Derby, at my advice, offered no opposition, and he, my wife, my son, and I attended the brief ceremony, the other guests being wild young people from the college. Azanath had brought the old crown and shield place in the country at the end of High Street, and they proposed to settle there after a short trip to Innsmouth, whence three servants and some books and household goods were to be brought. It was probably not so much consideration for Edward and his father as a personal wish to be near the college, its library, and its crowd of sophisticates that made Azanath settle in Arkham instead of returning permanently home. When Edward called on me after the honeymoon, I thought he looked slightly changed. Azanath had made him get rid of the undeveloped mustache, but there was more than that. He looked soberer and more thoughtful, his habitual pout of childish rebelliousness being exchanged for a look almost of genuine sadness. I was puzzled to decide whether I liked or disliked the change. Certainly he seemed for the moment more normally adult than ever before. Perhaps the marriage was a good thing. Might not the change of dependence form a start toward actual neutralization, leading ultimately to responsible independence? He came alone, for Azanath was very busy. She had brought a vast store of books and apparatus from Innsmouth, Derby shuddered as he spoke the name, and was finishing the restoration of the Crown and Shield house and grounds. Her home in that town was a rather disgusting place, but certain objects in it had taught him some surprising things. He was progressing fast in esoteric lore now that he had Azanath's guidance. Some of the experiments she proposed were very daring and radical. He did not feel at liberty to describe them, but he had confidence in her powers and intentions. The three servants were very queer, an incredibly aged couple who had been with old Ephraim and referred occasionally to him and to Azanath's dead mother in a cryptic way, and a swarthy young wench who had marked anomalies of feature and seemed to exude a perpetual odor of fish. 3. For the next two years I saw less and less of Derby. A fortnight would sometimes slip by without the familiar three-and-two strokes at the front door, and when he did call, or when, as happened with increasing infrequency, I called on him, he was very little disposed to converse on vital topics. He had become secretive about those occult studies which he used to describe and discuss so minutely, and preferred not to talk of his wife. She had aged tremendously since her marriage till now. Oddly enough, she seemed the elder of the two. 
Her face held the most concentratedly determined expression I had ever seen, and her whole aspect seemed to gain a vague, unplaceable repulsiveness. My wife and son noticed it, as much as I, and we all ceased gradually to call on her, for which, Edward admitted in one of his boyishly tactless moments, she was unmitigatedly grateful. Occasionally the Derbies would go on long trips, ostensibly to Europe, though Edward sometimes hinted at obscurer destinations. It was after the first year that people began talking about the change in Edward Derby. It was very casual talk, for the change was purely psychological, but it brought up some interesting points. Now and then it seemed Edward was observed to wear an expression and to do things wholly incompatible with his usual flabby nature. For example, although in the old days he could not drive a car, he was now seen occasionally to dash into or out of the old Crown and Shield driveway with Azanath's powerful Packard, handling it like a master and meeting traffic entanglements with a skill and determination utterly alien to his accustomed nature. In such cases, he seemed always to be just back from some trip, or just starting on one, what sort of trip no one could guess, although he mostly favored the Innsmouth Road. Oddly, the metamorphosis did not seem altogether pleasing. People said he looked too much like his wife, or like old Ephraim Waite himself in these moments, or perhaps these moments seemed unnatural because they were so rare. Sometimes, hours after starting out in this way, he would return listlessly sprawled on the rear seat of the car while an obviously hired chauffeur or mechanic drove. Also, his preponderant aspect on the streets during his decreasing round of social contacts, including, I may say, his calls on me, was the old-time indecisive one, its irresponsible childishness even more marked than in the past. While Azanath's face aged, Edwards, aside from those exceptional occasions, actually relaxed into a kind of exaggerated immaturity, save when a trace of the new sadness or understanding would flash across it. It was really very puzzling. Meanwhile, the Derbies almost dropped out of the gay college circle, not through their own disgust, we heard, but because something about their present studies shocked even the most callous of the other decadents. It was in the third year of the marriage that Edward began to hint openly to me of a certain fear and dissatisfaction. He would let fall remarks about things going too far, and would talk darkly about the need of gaining his identity. At first I ignored such references, but in time I began to question him guardedly, remembering what my friend's daughter had said about Azanath's hypnotic influence over the other girls at school, the cases where students had thought they were in her body, looking across the room at themselves. This questioning seemed to make him at once alarmed and grateful, and once he mumbled something about having a serious talk with me later. About this time, old Miss... About this time, old Mr. Derby died, for which I was afterward very thankful. Edward was badly upset, though by no means disorganized. He had seen astonishingly little of his parents since his marriage, for Azanath had concentrated in herself all his vital sense of family linkage. Some called him callous in his loss, especially since those jaunty and confident moods in the car began to increase. He now wished to move back into the old family mansion, but Azanath insisted on staying in the Crown and Shield house, to which she had become well-adjusted. Not long afterward, my wife heard a curious thing from a friend, one of the few who had not dropped the derbies. She had been out to the end of High Street to call on the couple, and had seen a car shoot briskly out of the driveway with Edward's oddly confident and almost sneering face above the wheel. Ringing the bell, she had been told by the repulsive wench that Azanath was out, but had chanced to look at the house in leaving. There, at one of Edward's library windows, she had glimpsed a hastily withdrawn face a face whose expression of pain, defeat, and wistful hopelessness was poignant beyond description. It was, incredibly enough in view of its usual domineering cast, Azanath's, 
yet the caller had vowed that in that instant the sad, muddled eyes of poor Edward were gazing out from it. Edward's calls now grew a trifle more frequent, and his hints occasionally became concrete. What he said was not to be believed, even in centuried and legend-haunted Arkham, but he threw out his dark lore with a sincerity and convincingness which made one fear for his sanity. He talked about terrible meetings in lonely places, of cyclopean ruins in the heart of the main woods beneath which vast staircases led down to abysses of knighted secrets, of complex angles that led through invisible walls to other regions of space and time, and of hideous exchanges of personality that permitted explorations in remote and forbidden places, on other worlds and in different space-time continua. He would now and then back up certain crazy hints by exhibiting objects which utterly nonplussed me, elusively colored and bafflingly textured objects like nothing ever heard of on Earth, whose insane curves and surfaces answered no conceivable purpose and followed no conceivable geometry. These things, he said, came from outside, and his wife knew how to get them. Sometimes, but always in frightened and ambiguous whispers, he would suggest things about old Ephraim Waite, whom he had seen occasionally at the college library in the old days. These adumbrations were never specific, but seemed to revolve around some especially horrible doubt as to whether the old wizard were really dead, in a spiritual as well as corporeal sense. At times, Derby would halt abruptly in his revelations, and I wondered whether Azanath could possibly have divined his speech at a distance and cut him off through some unknown sort of telepathic mesmerism, some power of the kind she had displayed at school. Certainly, she suspected that he told me things, for as the weeks passed, she tried to stop his visits with words and glances of a most inexplicable potency. Only with difficulty could he get to see me, for although he would pretend to be going somewhere else, some invisible force would generally clog his motions or make him forget his destination for the time being. His visits usually came when Azanath was way away in her own body, as he once oddly put it. She always found out later, the servants watched his goings and comings, but evidently she thought it inexpedient to do anything drastic. <laughs>